so great to see you this morning. What a blessing it is to be together. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 6 this morning in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, we've had the joy, really, the, the privilege over these last three Sundays of spending time in Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And by God's grace, we're still in Ephesians this morning. And the passage that's before us really marks a major turning point in Paul's writing. In the first three chapters, Paul only gave his readers just one imperative, one command that they should follow, and that was to remember. That was back in chapter 2, verse 11. He said, therefore, remember. So Paul was encouraging the Gentiles there specifically to remember who they were apart from Christ before they came to saving faith. Now, the rest of those first three chapters, Paul just contained reminders from Paul about everything that God has done for believers in Christ. And Paul wrapped up that section with the God-glorifying doxology that we looked at last week, uh, contained in chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And with that amen, Paul moves from indicative uh, to imperative. He moves from positional truth to practical truth, from doctrine to duty, uh, from principle to practice, from creed to conduct, uh, from the Christian's wealth to the Christian's walk, uh, from exposition to exhortation. You get the picture. There is a distinct shift in Paul's thinking, there's a distinct shift in his writing, which starts in chapter 4, verse 1. Uh, while those first three chapters only had that one command, that one imperative, the last three chapters have 39 imperatives to the church, 39 commands that they are to follow. Before we read through our passage together, uh, let me just uh, say a quick word of thanksgiving to the Lord that I'm not preaching this message based upon any sort of perceived threat or any sort of underlying rumors of, of a church split or any sort of uh, rumors of disharmony within the church. Uh, by God's grace, we're approaching this text this morning because we're going through the letter of Ephesians verse by verse. And so um, I'm so thankful that uh, I'm not here exhorting you to be uh, in unity. We, we share an incredible unity in this church, and that truly is by God's grace. And, and it's His grace that we get to uh, see this passage this morning, set our minds on it, and hopefully to even grow in unity more and more uh, through this word. Now let's read through Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6 together. I'll read that aloud. You follow along. Uh, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the very word of God, and God bless the reading of his word. Right from the start there, we, we see, come across the word, therefore, uh, and the correct response when we see that is to wonder what it's there for, right? There's a difference of opinions in biblical scholars exactly to what Paul was referring when he said, therefore. 
Uh, he could have been talking about just his doxology and this high praise of God and saying, therefore, do this. But I think Paul was actually probably referring back to everything that he had written up to this point in his letter, especially about all that God has done in Christ for believers. Uh, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive together with Christ. Uh, we were alienated from God. But by grace, through faith in Jesus, we've been reconciled to God. Therefore, we should walk accordingly. We were alienated from Israel and thereby had no hope. We were without God in the world. But now in Christ, we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. Man has been reconciled to man. Therefore, we ought to live in a way that reflects that truth. We've been recreated in Christ Jesus for good works. Therefore, we should walk in them. We've been built, or we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Therefore, our lives should reflect that very truth. We've been saved by grace through faith. And this is not our own doing. It's it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Therefore, we should live in a way that clearly displays that truth. Paul points back to the truth proclaimed in those first three chapters and says that a head knowledge of that truth is simply not sufficient. Our doing must be in line with what God has done. And this is Paul's point. In verse 1 of chapter 4, Paul gave his readers a quick reminder of his status as as a prisoner for the Lord. As I was thinking about this passage, I was studying it through the week, I kept coming up with images of, of Danny Kay. Um, his character in the, one of my favorite Christmas shows, White Christmas. Um, many of you are familiar with that. Uh, Danny Kaye pl- played the part of a private, and um, he was opposite of Bing Crosby, who was the captain, and the private uh, saved the captain's life by pushing him out of the way of a falling building, and then he sustained a, an injury in, in that act of valor. And he frequently would remind the captain of, of that injury that he sustained um, in, in order to manipulate uh, Bing Crosby or, or the captain to do what he wanted him to do. I, I don't think that's what Paul was doing here. I, I don't think he was trying to manipulate his readers uh, by reminding them of his imprisonment. Instead, what I think he was doing was providing for them an example of what it might look like uh, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they had been called. Doing so could have grave consequences. Uh, That was certainly the case back in the first century in the Roman Empire. Uh, It's certainly the case in many places around the world for Christians today. Day by day, they find themselves at at risk, their lives at risk. And I think it's increasingly becoming true of our own context. Uh, Here in the Western church, there's an increasing anti-Christian movement in our culture. Uh, You guys have probably seen that firsthand. But none of that should catch us by surprise. Uh, If we were of the world, the world would love us as one of its own, Uh, but we've been called out of the world. And if the world hated Christ, and we boldly proclaim to be followers of Christ, then the world will hate us too. Uh, We can take that to the bank. Well, still in verse 1 there, Paul urges us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. The word translated there is worthy is where we get the English word uh, axiom from. You math wizards already know what an axiom is, that in a, in a mathematical equation, uh, the axiom indicates that 
doing something, if you're going to do something on one side of the equation, you have to do the same thing on the other side of the equation. And I have no idea what that means, but I'm told that that is an accurate statement, right? So if you don't do the same thing on, on both sides of the equation, then it's no longer an equation. You've messed things up. Well, Paul's saying that we should live our lives in an equal manner uh, to the qual- calling to which we've been called. The calling to which we've been called, of course, is explained back in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 4. It says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And the way that we live our lives should equate to that glorious calling to which we have been called. Before God even created the world, uh, he set his love on his elect. Every day, our everyday existence should exhibit that reality. How, but how do we do that? How, how do we walk in a worthy manner? How can my life equal the glory to which I have been called not only before I was born, but before the world even existed. Paul answers those questions and more in the final three chapters of his letter. In verses 1 to 16 of chapter 4, he he focuses on walking in unity. Uh, And then on verse 17 and beyond, he focuses on walking in, in purity. Unity is the emphasis of our text this morning, and the remaining five verses of our passage can be broken up into the following headings. Uh, First, we have the virtues of unity. Secondly, we have the foundation of unity. And last, we have the call for unity. Let's start by looking at the virtues of unity, uh, the virtues of unity. We see those in verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. According to Paul, the first virtue that leads to unity is humility. Uh, Humility. Uh, The Greek word translated as humility It's not a very common word. It wasn't used very frequently in ancient Rome or in ancient Greece. Uh, And any time that uh, it can be found in ancient literature, it was always used with uh, with a matter of or with a negative connotation. There was there was a a measure of disdain whenever it was used. Uh, Humility was not highly valued uh, in Paul's day. Strength, uh, brashness, self-exaltation—that's what they valued. In that day, and we kind of see the same thing happening in our own day. And these things garner respect uh, even today. We briefly considered last week how, how the elevation of self is simply the way of life in the world in which we live, and it's completely contrary to biblical teaching. We have selfies posted to social media, and as if a simple selfie wasn't sufficient, uh, we've developed all kinds of filters uh, that help us to be even more enamored with ourselves, right, to keep our, our faces uh, on those little electronic screens. We have athletes that are telling the, the fans of opposing teams, I own you. Uh, we have commercials that encourage us to simply, you do you, you be you. Uh, and they also tell us that you deserve a break today, right? We're, we're told that we need to be looking out for number one. And, and what's implied there is that I'm number one. Uh, I'm my top priority. If somebody happens to dis- disagree with our viewpoints, uh, we're told you don't need that kind of negativity in your life. Right? And so just, just cancel that opposing argument and get rid of that. You just, you just don't need that in your life. Well, that is the opposite of humility. Uh, that is pride through and through. Pride is at the heart of every sin. 
Uh, every conflict that happens with, with others is rooted in pride. Pride is being filled with self, whereas humility is an emptying of oneself. Keep your fingers there in Ephesians 4 and turn over with me one book to the right, uh, one book to the right to the book of uh, Philippians. I turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, and we're going to just start at verse 3 there and uh, read down through verse 8. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 to 8, where it says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul's teaching on humility, both in Ephesians and in Philippians, is, is a stark contrast. It's a radical departure uh, from the, the culture in which he lived. There are a number of biblical examples that we could look at uh, to see humility on display. Uh, we could look at Peter, certainly could look at Paul, at the Apostle John, uh, John the Baptist, but none of them compare to the example that we have for us in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, though he was in heaven, in glory, with the Father, with the Holy Spirit, in perfect unity, he chose to leave that. He didn't consider that something to be grasped, but instead he humbled himself. He emptied himself by taking on the form of one of his created beings. Uh, and as if that wasn't enough, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to the point of death, uh, even death on a cross. Paul says that if, if we're going to walk in a worthy manner, our lives must be marked by humility. This makes perfect sense because nobody can become a Christian apart from first being humbled. We have to be humble enough to recognize that we are sinful beings, and this is a work of the Holy Spirit. We must agree with God that we have sinned against Him, and that has to be done in humility. We must recognize our helpless estate apart from Christ. We must be humble enough to recognize that we cannot possibly earn God's favor. There's no amount of self-righteousness that we can accrue to earn God's favor, to be right in His eyes. We have to come to him in humility. We have to turn from sin and admit that our only hope is in Jesus Christ. Well, the next trait of a worthy walk is gentleness. Gentleness. Humility and gentleness really go hand in hand. They go hand in hand in what Paul wrote there, and they, they also go hand in hand in, in practicality. A humble person will also be a gentle person. The word for gentleness is also translated as meekness, but less so in our day because I think there's a confusion where a lot of people think that meekness means weakness, but that's not the case. Gentleness or, or meekness definitely is not weakness. Rather, it is power under control. It's, it's the same term that's used for, for taming an animal. Uh, if you think about a horse, a horse is able to run every bit as fast after it's been broken as it was beforehand, but now it does so at the behest and in the direction of the rider. It still has power, but that power is under control. Biblical gentleness is power under the control of God. 
Numbers 12, verse 3 says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. Think about Moses. Uh, In his meekness, he was able to go toe-to-toe with one of the most powerful leaders in the world at the time. And he demanded from that leader the release of the nation of Israel from slavery. In his meekness, Moses confronted his own people in their idolatry. In that same meekness, he would even, even intervene for them before God. In his list of qualifying characteristics of a pastor uh, found in 1 Timothy 3, Paul said that pastors are not to be violent or bullies, but that instead they should be gentle or meek. Gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit, uh, listed in Galatians 5. If we're walking in a worthy manner, uh, if we're walking by the Spirit and not by the flesh, we will have, we'll be gentle toward one another. It'll be an outflow of the Spirit of God working in us. We'll, we'll even have gentleness toward outsiders. Well, just like humility, gentleness involves setting aside one, of oneself. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, to be meek means you have finished with yourself altogether. There's an end to self there. Well, the third trait trait that uh, Paul brings to our attention uh, is patience. Patience. How are you doing with patience? (laughs) For me, this is a tough one. Uh, And my wife says amen. (laughs) And my kids said amen. And my fluffy golden doodle says amen. (laughs) Right? There are so many things that uh, cause me to lose my patience. And It really is keeping me humble and helping me to realize that I have much to grow in Christ-likeness, my lack of patience. Uh, Last night I was even driving to Costco, and I had two different routes to choose from. One was a a back road and one was uh, a main road. And I said, well, tonight I'll just go ahead and take the main road. And there are nine traffic lights along the way. And I know that because I counted them as I stopped at all nine of those traffic lights. And I found myself losing patience, and then I actually had to think about this passage, and I thought, well, why on earth would I be impatient about traffic lights? Like, like I'm supposed to be somehow be immune to traffic lights? They're, they're supposed to all be green for me? Like, no, that's, that's not how it works. But you have to be careful uh, when you pray for patience. <laughs> James Montgomery Boyce tells a story of a man who came to his pastor, and he was in desperate need, and he, he said, Pastor, I, I need you to to pray for me, for patience. And the pastor said, okay, that's fine. Uh, just give me a few minutes. No, no, he didn't say give me a few minutes. He said, he said okay, let's, let's pray together. And so he started praying. And he said, Lord, I ask that you would bring great suffering into my brother's life. And the young man quietly reached out and touched the pastor's arm real quick to, just to stop him right where he was. And he says, I'm sorry, I think you misunderstood what he said. I, I, was, I was wanting patience and not suffering. And the pastor said to him, I heard you perfectly well, but have you not read Romans 5.3, which says, um, Romans 5.3 says, not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces patience. Suffering produces endurance and long suffering. I prayed that God would bring you suffering so that you could grow in patience. Now, if anybody is wanting prayer for patience at the end of the service, we'll have our elders up here and available. Uh, just don't be surprised if you hear us talking about suffering in that as well. Uh, patience is an important uh, virtue uh, because a lack of patience really is a display of a lack of love. It's a display of a lack of humility. Our demands to have things done 
the way that we want at the time that we choose really is a demonstration of, of a lack of love and, uh, and, and certainly a, a great amount of pride as well. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says that love is patient and kind, and thereby we can deduce that impatience is unloving and unkind. The thing that ought to motivate our pursuit of patience is, is a recognition of God's own patience toward us. Uh, think about God's patience uh, while we were still sinners, the patience that God exhibited each and every day. Think about after we became believers in Christ, the patience that God continues to exhibit in our lives each and every day. We must be patient with one another in light of God's patience toward us. Well, the fourth and final trait there that Paul urges us to have as we walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called is, is bearing with one another in love. We can call this forbearance in love or bearing with one another in love. 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins, and that's really at the heart of bearing with one another in love. The idea that Paul is conveying is that because we are still imperfect, every one of us, because we are still sinners, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ will inevitably sin against one another, and how we respond to that is incredibly important. We should be bearing with one another in that. I came across a, a story of a, a really nasty church split in which both sides of the fracture, both sides of the church split were suing one another, and they completely neg neglected uh, biblical teaching to not go to civilian courts. Uh, they sued each other because they were both trying to get the property rights for the church facility. And by God's grace, the, the, the civilian courts threw the, the case out and so they went to their denominational leadership and each pleading their case to, to keep the rights of the church facility. Eventually, the, the church court decided for one side, and that meant that the other side had to pack up and leave, and they ended up uh, starting a new church nearby. Uh, but in those proceedings, it was found out that this whole church split uh, began at a church dinner. And it, and it happened when an elder of the church received a slice of ham uh, that was smaller than the, the size of a slice of ham that a boy next to him had received. That's where it all started, and it ended up in, in a church split. Uh, you can tell there was a lack of humility there. Uh, there was a lack of patience. There was a lack of gentleness. There was a lack of forbearance with one another. And it resulted in a church actually splitting. And in that case, uh, the name of Christ just being dragged through the mud as well um, in that denomination and certainly in the public eye as well. The only way that two sinners can be in relationship with one another is by bearing with one another in love. Any relationship that lacks that ability is either going to be a very shallow relationship uh, or it's going to be a very short-lived relationship. Uh, that's true in marriage. That's true in any interpersonal relationship. We, we all make mistakes, but how we react when somebody doesn't behave according to our expectations, it really reflects our spiritual maturity or lack thereof? Are we short-fused? Do we fly off the handle? Do we completely lose self-control? Do we resort to name-calling? Or do we pout and sulk in our disappointment? If we do, uh, we're not bearing with one another in love. This is a mutual bearing with one another in the knowledge that we are all imperfect. 
we extend grace to others because much grace has been extended to us. We forgive others because God in Christ has forgiven us so much. Well, Paul says that the manner of life worthy of the calling to which we have been called is marked by humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance. These are the virtues of unity. Uh, All of these enable us to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, which we'll look at in just a minute. But now let's look at the foundation of unity, the foundation of unity. We see that in verses 4 to 6. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Seven times Paul uses the word one in that sentence. It doesn't take a biblical scholar to to realize that Paul's emphasis here is on, on oneness or on unity. And he teaches us that our unity is rooted in the unity of the Holy Trinity. Did you catch that? In verse 4, Paul is writing of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Then in verse 5, he writes of our one Lord, who is Jesus Christ. Then in verse 6, he writes of the God and Father of all. Let's quickly look at each of these seven unities here that Paul writes about and how they're connected with at least one person of the Trinity. First, in verse 4, we see the person of the Holy Spirit and his work in creating unity. Paul says there's one body, one spirit, and one hope. He starts by using the body as a metaphor for the church. Uh, We are all members of one body, and we work together with the same purpose of glorifying God. And we heard that in the passage that Mike read from us uh, from 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul goes through great lengths to to use the body as as a word picture for, for the church, stressing both the unity uh, or the unity of purpose and of, of value. If one member suffers in the church, the whole church suffers. If one member is honored, the whole church rejoices in that. Now, secondly, in verse 4, Paul says that there is one spirit. The great news that we must see is that the unity that exists in the church exists because of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit creates, fills, grows, empowers the body of Christ. This is the Lord's doing. Each of us have our own uh, conversion stories uh, which, with details that are as unique as, as we are, uh, but when it comes to describing the work of the Holy Spirit in our conversion, it, it's, it's the identical same story for all of us. There was an awakening to sin. The Holy Spirit did a work when we uh, encountered the gospel message, the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, the Holy Spirit brought to our eyes the recognition that we have sinned against a holy God. Then there's this regeneration. The Holy Spirit brings new life into our hearts, which enables us to understand spiritual truth. Then there's the birthing of faith. Now, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, God empowers us to turn away from sin and repentance and to turn to Christ in faith. This, too, is a work of the Holy Spirit of God. And then there's sanctification. The Holy Spirit produces in all of us the same fruits of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't give to some love and then to others patience and then to others self-control. No, we're all united in the fruit that the Holy Spirit provides in us through sanctification. Paul also mentions in verse 4 the one hope to which we were called. The hope that we have is the inheritance, which is ours through Christ. This includes eternal life. It includes glorification. 
And this hope is, it's, it's not a wishful thinking kind of hope. It's not something that we have to wish upon a star and hope that we get this. No, it's secure because it's been secured in, in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has sealed this and is the guarantee of our inheritance. We have not fully taken possession of the inheritance, but it is ours nonetheless. And of this, we should have absolutely no doubt. Our one Lord, moving on to verse 5 there, we see the person of Jesus Christ in his work in creating unity in the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Of course, the one Lord to whom Paul is referring there is Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Paul wrote, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Our one Lord creates one faith because he is the object of that faith. We're not united by the sincerity of our faith. Uh, We're united by the object of our faith, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, We don't have faith in faith. We have faith in Jesus. And this unites both the local church and the universal church. Uh, Genuine believers in Christ um, uh, share the same faith, uh, even those that are in China or in Zimbabwe uh, or Poland, or if you can believe it, even in Canada as well, right? Right? Paul, when Paul wrote of one baptism there, he didn't seem to be talking specifically about either water baptism or being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Uh, rather, it seems like his focus is on the unity of our, our baptism in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, since the beginning of the church, Christians have been being baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is in, in obedience to uh, Christ's great commission at the end of, of uh, Matthew. Well, lastly, in verse 6, we see the person of the Father and his work in creating unity. Um, One God and Father of all, who is through all, or over all, and through all, and in all. Here, Paul is emphasizing the reality that this third race, the the church, uh, has the same paternity. Uh, Regardless of who we were before we became believers in Christ, every one of us is able to refer to the God who created all things. We can refer to him as, as Father. We're all family. Uh, our Father is sovereign over all. Uh, he's powerful, working through all. And he is omnipresent, working in all as well. The foundation of our unity comes from these amazing unities, which are all rooted in the unity of the Trinity. One body, one spirit, One hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Because this is true, uh, Paul gives his readers a a call to unity. Uh, The call to unity is the the final point in our sermon outline, and we see that in verse 3, where it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That really should be read probably with uh, verse 1 as well. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So how do we eagerly maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? What what does obedience to this call look like? First, we must be eager or intentional about maintaining, maintaining unity. Passivity will not maintain unity. We have to strive for this. We actually have to burn calories to maintain unity. We have to work toward this. We must be on our guard against things that divide, uh, things that fuel conflict, like gossip 
and rumors. We, we have to squash those when, where they exist. Those things will kill unity quickly in a church. Paul says that we're to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. When disagreements and disappointments arise, which they will from time to time, uh, we must display those virtues of, of unity, humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance. This must be the, the, the display that we, uh, the, this really must be the lifestyle that we live because we will have conflict from time to time. Secondly, we need to understand the high calling of the unity in the church. Uh, this is not unity for the sake of unity. We don't sacrifice truth for the sake of unity, but the, the unity that we have is, is by God's grace, is something that we have, and it's uh, really something that Christ valued so much that he would even spend much of his prayer the night before he died praying for this unity. Uh, turn over real quickly to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, we're not going to be able to read this entire prayer, but I want to read part of it with you. In John chapter 17, this is Jesus praying to the Father. Uh, we'll start in verse 20, and we'll read down through verse 23. Uh, John chapter 17, verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And so what Jesus is doing here, he's praying to the Father, and he's saying he's not praying only for his disciples, uh, for those 11 faithful disciples, but he's also praying for those who would come to faith in Jesus through their word. That, that's Jesus praying for all of us. We, we've come to faith in Jesus through the words of the disciples. So Christ is praying for us there, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. Our obedience to this call to maintain unity uh, is, is vital because there's an outside world uh, that's looking on. And that outside world finds unity something that is very, very evasive. Uh, they, they develop organizations like the United Nations in, in hopes of bringing an end to conflict. How's that working? Um, they, they come up with clever marketing schemes. Some of you might remember back in the day how people wanted just to teach the world to sing in perfect harmony. They'd like to buy a world of Coke and keep it company, right? I'd like to see how that would work. Um, when, when the outside world sees the church, uh, they should see a unity that completely uh, is totally different from what their present experience is. They should see a unity that uh, they believe, so that they would believe that the Father has truly sent the Son and that the Father loves the church just as the Father loves the Son. Our unity is to be a witness to a fractured and to a broken world. As I mentioned earlier, I'm thankful that the unity, for the unity that we have at NBC. I was reminded of, of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in which he told them that, that they had no need for anybody to write to them about brotherly love uh, because their love for all of the brothers was known throughout the area, throughout Macedonia. Uh, and NBC, my brothers and sisters in Christ, 
You have no need for somebody to tell you to maintain unity uh, because you are already maintaining the unity. But even so, I urge you all the more to work hard, to strive, to be eager to maintain the unity through humility and gentleness and patience and forbearance and all of this for God's glory and also for our good. Let's close in a word of prayer. And then Pastor Steve's going to come up and he's going to lead us a song as we uh, prepare our hearts to celebrate the Lord's table together. Let's pray. Father God, I, I ask that you would strike from our memories anything that I might have said that is not in keeping with the truth of the gospel. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be imparting your truth to our hearts and that we would respond in giving you all the praise. Thank you for the unity that we share as a church family, Lord. Amazingly, you have given to all who have received Jesus, who believed in his name, the right to become your children. We're united not because we've worked hard to establish unity, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit uniting us in Jesus Christ. Compel us to be eager to maintain this unity. Open our eyes to sin, which would threaten the unity of our church, and may we be quick to repent of it. We ask your Holy Spirit to work in us and and to make us more like Jesus, who perfectly displayed the virtues of unity, humility and gentleness, patience and forbearance and love. Protect our church from the enemy who threatens us with disharmony. For those who find themselves on the outside looking in, those who have not turned from sin and and believed in Jesus, Father, I pray that they would be granted repentance and faith today. May they experience firsthand the fellowship and the unity your church enjoys in Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.